Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OGRS, the original great Rob Silver. And today we will be talking about the two fight of the year candidates from this past weekend. Another Q&A session. My prediction on this week's junior welterweight vacant title fight between Jeremiah Ponce and Subriel Matias. And then I will end the podcast with my historical overview of my seventh greatest fighter of the last 45 years. The greatest heavyweight I've seen in my lifetime, the Eastern assassin, Larry Holmes. But before I begin the podcast, I, I really want to hammer to you guys, encourage you guys to please, if you have an additional $5 in your pocket, I have a special Patreon podcast called The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali here on the Fight Game Media Network. The link is in the description. In this podcast, I am going to review the 10 biggest fights of Muhammad Ali's career. Part one is up already, and that's Ali's first round knockout in the controversial fight between Sonny Liston in the second fight and the rematch. May 25th, 1965. In the upcoming week, I'll be recording uh, my second part of the Life and Times of Muhammad Ali. And that's Ali's November 1965 fight versus former two-time heavyweight champion of the world and Hall of Fame member Floyd Patterson. Um, Ten parts you also have on the Patreon feed. My 10-part series on the greatest upsets in boxing history. Uh, Garrett Gonzalez and I did a four-part episode. Four part, four parts. Four shows on the controversial Mike Tyson Hulu docuseries. And you also have Garrett and my buddy Duan with the Rocky retrospective podcast in which they covered every Rocky episode. You're going to hear that going up until the Creed episode. I mean, the Creed part three movie that comes out next month in two weeks, rather Uh, that entire series will be available on Patreon as well. Okay. On to Saturday night's fights and what an amazing Night of, uh, well, afternoon and evening. It depends on where you lived. If you lived in England, it was evening and early, early uh, after midnight in like three o'clock in the morning in uh, England. But in the United States, in New York City, where I was watching the fights, you had the first fight occur, I think around 5.30, the fight ended around six o'clock Eastern time. And that's... The first fight we'll be talking about, Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lada. Now, I predicted Wood would win by a split decision. I was wrong. I was right that it would be a fight of the year candidate, but I was wrong. And Lee Wood was making me look good. Um, The only round I gave Lara was the second round because he staggered Wood. 
But round round one, a wood one, and rounds three to six, Wood was out punching, out boxing, out finessing Mauricio Lara. Mauricio Lara reminds me of Rafael Bazooka Lamont. To me, he's a modern day Rafael Bazooka Lamont. Rafael Bazooka Lamont was a former world champion, WBC super featherweight champion, and he beat what was the dude? Oh, Rolando Navarrete. He knocked out Navarrete after taking a ferocious beating. He knocked out Navarrete. And this fight reminded me of that fight because Lara reminds me of Navarrete, a guy that has an incredible chin, keeps coming, doesn't stop, and then can knock you out with one shot. Like Navarrete did with, uh, I, I mean, like... Lamone did with Navarrete. That's what happened in this fight. First six rounds. I gave Wood five of the first six rounds as he was landing. Mauricio Lara has no defense whatsoever. His best uh, defense is countering your offense because he's not going to stop you from landing his shots. The man has a chin like a Bazooka Lamone, like a Jose Luis Ramirez, like a Julio Cesar Chavez. He's got a chin of granite. You got to, I mean, you got to hit him with baseball bats the whole nine to put him out. Seventh round, once again, Lee Wood was dominating, and then out of nowhere, Wood walked into a spectacular left hook that put him to sleep. Wood was knocked out, and ladies and gentlemen, that was the end of, well, let me back up for a second. I have to give Wood credit. He got caught with a spectacular left hook, and he got up. He got up. And the referee was going to let him continue, but for some reason, Ben Davidson, Wood's trainer, threw in the towel, and I believe it was less than 10, 10 seconds left in the round. If I was Davidson's trainer, I wouldn't have done it. But you know what? I'm not going to scream foul like a lot of fight fans, especially British fans, have been screaming since that moment occurred, we have to look at the safety of the boxer. And if Ben Davidson thought that his fighter would suffer um, irreparable damage, then he was by behind. Uh, he was in no doubt in his right to stop the fight. The trainer has to look out for his fighter. Regardless of what's on the line I feel bad for Lee Wood Because I think he would have survived the round But what if he had survived the fight Lyra is an incredible finisher And was there enough time Because remember When Wood was dropped by that Spectacular left hook His head bounced off the canvas like a basketball No doubt he had to have been Concussed at that moment So fight fans Stop with the bitching And moaning Stop complaining about Ben Davidson stopping the fight You thought it was too soon Boxing is a rough sport By Davidson doing what he did Wood gets to fight Lara Hopefully in a rematch And he gets to fight another day If he would have survived that round Which he probably would have He would have went into the 8th round A sitting duck Because no doubt he was concussed His head bounced off that canvas 60 seconds is not enough for your head Bouncing off a canvas to recuperate Congratulations to Mauricio Lara. 
I mean, he is on a great run. He's either going to fight Josh Warrington or Lee Wood in his next fight. And <laughs> in the words of McFadden and Whitehead, Whitehead, Mauricio Lara must be thinking, ain't no stopping us now. We're on the move. A great knockout, great win. Um, kudos to Mauricio Lara. Then we go to the main event that happened Saturday night. Now, let me give the zone credit. The zone broadcast both fights. They broadcasted both fights. And both fights are fight of the year candidates. They broadcasted the Wood Lara fight. And they broadcasted the fight between uh, Luis Pantera, Pantera Neri. And I don't I never could say his name. Azot, Azot, Crazy A, Hovenician. Another fucking war. Oh, but I mean, kudos to the zone for having um Corey Ertman do the announcing. Lead announcer, but that fucking Sergio Mora was horrible. When the fight started, he said that Lewis Nari was the master boxer puncher. That he was the perfect hybrid of a boxer puncher. What are you smoking, Sergio? Are you kidding me? What are you smoking? Anyway, it was an incredible war. I mean, I was on my feet the entire fight. This fight had its ebbs and flows. This fight was phenomenal. Phenomenal. I I wouldn't mind a rematch for this fight. Even though Hovinician has taken a ton of punishment in his entire career. And this is the type of fight that is that might ruin him for the rest of his career. Um Hovinician was getting his ass kicked. Thoroughly until the eighth round when he began to go to the body and he was um hurting him. But then in the tenth round, Nary dropped Hovinician with a beautiful left hook right cross combination. And Hovinician barely survived, but then in the eleventh round, Nary stepped up and he engaged in an all out war with Hovinician. And Neri got hit with shots he had no business getting hit with, but it resulted in the referee stepping in, stopping the fight. 11th round technical knockout for Lewis Neri. Great job by Ray Corona. He gave Hovenesian the benefit of the doubt until when he saw Hovenesian just couldn't defend himself anymore. Even though Hovenesian was still throwing punches back, every one of Neri's shots was landing flush in the 11th round. Ray Corona stepped in, but I think it's too late for Hovenesian. He's been in one too many fucking wars. Um, I hope he can get a job training as a as a boxing trainer because his fight days are gone. He's just going to be a stepping stone and a punching bag for up-and-coming 122-pounders. Oh, by the way, this was for one of those vacant... Um, 122-pound titles, uh, the WBC version, one of the alphabet soup versions. So who was more impressive, Lewis Neri or Mauricio Lara? Who is the pound-for-pound fighter of the week? 
I got to go with Mauricio Lara because Neri, even though he was winning the fight on my scorecard and on all three scorecards, and he took the fight to Hovindicin and he did some great work. Hovindicin's defense is shot. He's got no defense, and Neri took way too much punishment, while Lara beat a fighter more skilled than him, and he caught him with a picture-perfect left hook and then stepped in and stopped him. So Mauricio Lara is the pound-for-pound MVP fighter of the week. Now, this Saturday night, we have another vacant title fight. There's a lot of vacant titles. There's a lot of uh, champions are moving up in division or just refusing to fight their their mandatory contenders or getting stripped by these alphabet soup criminal cartel organizations. However you want to put it, we have another uh, Saturday night for the vacant IBF Junior Welterweight Championship. We have Subriel Matias against Jeremias Ponce. And this, ladies and gentlemen, will continue the great trend we've had in the last four to five weeks of great boxing. This is another fight of the year candidate, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a war because Subriel Matias is one of the five most exciting fighters fighting on television today. This is going to be back and forth. This is going to be maybe multiple knockdowns. But I see Matias winning by ninth, tenth round knockout in an absolute war to win his first world championship. So hopefully... My predictions go a prediction streak begins anew. It it uh I had lost track of how many fights in a row I had predicted correctly until last week when Mauricio Lara landed the left hook hurt around the world in putting Wood's head bounce off the canvas and then having his trainer Ben Ben Davison throw in the towel. So that's my prediction for next week. And now on to the Q and A session. Of the podcast Let me get Get it up Ladies and gentlemen For those who want Their answers Their questions Rather answered Here on The Pound for Pound Podcast You go to Twitter And you Go hashtag Ask Rob Silver Which I'm typing in Right now And ask A question It could be anything It could be on boxing It could be on Women It could be on sports It could be on music it could be on my personal life. If I decide to answer it, I'll decide to answer it. All right, let me set this up. Hold on, ladies and gentlemen. Let me get this these questions ready. And here we go. First couple of questions are from LL School K. The first question, who did the high guard better, Marlon Stalin or Winky Wright? It's not even close. Winky Wright had the greatest high guard defense of all time, in my opinion. Winky Wright is among the five greatest defensive fighters I've ever seen in my lifetime. If you were to tell me who the greatest defensive fighters of all time were, I'd go Floyd, Purnell, Pep. Winky Wright, James Tony are my five greatest defensive fighters that ever lived. Marlon Stalin had a tendency to get hit 
far too often to be a great defensive fighter. Now, he was a skilled technician, and if I had a vote, in, in my opinion, he had a greater career than that fucking Tim Bradley. He belongs in the Hall of Fame before Tim Bradley, former two-time welterweight champion of the world, Marlon Stalin, a man that knocked out Mark Breland, uh, was robbed in the rematch against Mark Breland, destroyed Lloyd Hunnigan. Marlon Stalin beat a lot of very good to great fighters. Barely lost to Donald Cobra Curry twice in two great fights. But defensively, he wasn't a wizard. Nah, he was a skilled technician, and he was a tough out for anybody, and he had the legendary Eddie Fudge training him, the greatest trainer I've, I've ever seen in my lifetime. But Winky was the greatest defensive fighter with that high guard. Greatest, in my opinion, Winky had the greatest high guard in the history of boxing. LL's next question. Name my top five outside boxers. Outside fighters in boxing. Well, he meant boxers, outside boxers. Well, top five. When we talk about guys that could fight from the outside, I'm not going to do it in order. I'm just going to name five names and what comes to mind. Thomas Hearns. No one ever outboxed Thomas Hearns. He fought tall. He fought from the outside. Sometimes he'd move backwards. Most of the time, he'd just stand tall, pump that phenomenal left jab, and throw that right cross right down the pipe. Good night. Muhammad Ali, moving left and right in his prime. Ali from the outside. And we're talking 1964 to 1967. And you hear all about that prime on my Patreon, Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, for $5 extra a month. The link is in the description. From 64 to 67, my father said that Ali was only matched in his lifetime, my father's lifetime, by Roy Jones in terms of perfect fighters. Fighters that were flawless, fighters that could do it all, fighters that could not be beat. He always said 1964 to 1967, Muhammad Ali, and 1993 to 2000, Roy Jones, he my father died in 2000, so he didn't see Roy in 01, 02, 03. And then finally, when he finally got knocked out consecutively by uh, Tarver and Glenn Coffey Johnson, my father had already been uh, dead four years. So he didn't get to see the decline of Roy. He only saw Roy at his utmost greatest. So you got Thomas Hearns. Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, and the guy that Hearns dominated twice, got robbed once, and Leonard had to win by a late knockout in the first fight. Ray Leonard, when he boxed from the outside, was as brilliant as any fighter ever fought. Uh, check out his second fight versus Roberto Duran. He fought masterfully from the outside. Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali. And Thomas Hitman Hearns, three of the greatest fighters that fought from the outside. Pernell Sweet P. Whitaker and Floyd Mayweather Jr. Now, I never got to see Floyd fight because I died in 1995 and Floyd turned pro in 1996. So I'm going to let Silver continue and tell you about Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, so there you go. Floyd Mayweather, Pernell Whitaker, Thomas Hearns, Muhammad Ali, and Sugar Ray Leonard are my five greatest fighters from the outside in boxing history. Honorable mention goes to Larry Holmes, and we'll be talking about Larry Holmes later on in the podcast with my historical overview of Larry Holmes. Now, 
on to a hip-hop question from longtime listener Mark. And Mark asks, Rob, love to hear firsthand what it was like living in the South Bronx in 1987-ish doing KRS-One and BDP versus MC Shan. It's funny that you asked that question because it was also a battle on the radio in New York City between Mr. Magic from WBLS, whose engineer was Marley Mall, whose DJ was Marley Mall scratching the records. Marley Mall was part of MC Shan's Queensbridge crew. And Red Alert on KISS FM, who was down with the BDP crew. So you, it was a radio war and an MC war, but to me it was all fun and games, man. There was no violence. Um, Scott LaRock was murdered in 1987, and you saw, which had nothing to do with the, the rivalry between Queensbridge and the South Bronx. When Scott LaRock died in 1987, KRS-One went from writing nihilistic music. If you remember, Mark, Criminal, Criminally Minded was uh, BDP's first album. And it was a, it was a gangster rap album, one of the first ones. Um, others say that uh, Schoolie D and Ice T were the first gangster rap artists from Philly and L.A. respectively. I won't argue with you. I know the first gangster rap album in New York was Criminally Minded by BDP, and you know my nine mm goes with a bang and uh <laughs> the crack <laughs> wait a minute uh the pussy is free but the crack costs money you had misogyny uh, mis uh how do you say misogyny uh anti-female lyrics mis misogynistic lyrics uh drug music gangster music all in that album and it's a classic album, but it's hard to listen to today when you consider what was going on in the South Bronx when this album was recorded and released in 1986. It was during the height of the crack epidemic in the South Bronx. I've talked many times on this and other podcasts how I was 18 when Criminally Minded came out now, and I was 19 when Mark asked the question, what was going on in the South Bronx? I will tell you, Mark, that in the Millbrook Projects where I grew up, we were heavily behind KRS-One because KRS-One was from our neighborhood. He was from the South Bronx. But we didn't we, we didn't get into it like 10 years later when you had that so-called East Coast-West Coast rivalry, Biggie versus Pac, et cetera, and the media lost their fucking mind and, and made it look like it was gang war. It was a gang war, gang wars on crack. No, it, we looked at it as a friendly battle, you know, Bronx versus Queens, South Bronx versus Queensbridge, and we were enjoying it. When Scott LaRock was murdered in 1987, KRS-One no longer became a gangster rapper, became more of a socially conscious rapper, and he took his hip-hop to another level. He took his MC to another level, and he helped lead the charge for that fight uh uh what you call it uh we're headed for self-destruction we're headed for self-destruction which was a unity rap 
and it was a it was a song about ending black on black violence and the violence that had decimated the black communities throughout the United States because of the crack ep- epidemic. And my neighborhood took Scott LaRock's death real bad because he was one of ours. That was one of the biggest deaths in the history of the South Bronx and it hurt my community to its core. And damn, 36 years ago, Scott LaRock was murdered. Thanks again, Mark, and thanks for always listening. And look, you know, contribute some more, man, because you've been a listener of mine for several years, way before I started doing the Pound for Pound podcast. And I have a question. This is a perfect segue to another longtime listener who wants to know why I don't do a certain podcast I used to do. And this is from Longtran. And Longtran asks, a personal question this week. Why did you stop doing the World Championship Boxing Podcast with Logan? The last episode we did was December of 2021. Um, I started the Fight Game Media Podcast, Pound for Pound Podcast, the podcast you listen to, in 2021 as a Patreon-only exclusive. And then uh, Gary Gonzalez decided to put it on the free feed beginning early to last year, 13 months ago, uh, January 2022. So I thought I'd be dividing the listenership. So Logan and I decided to discontinue that pop podcast for the time being. We devoted our podcast time to doing classic music tribute podcasts, which we did several up until August of last year. 2022 when Logan decided to retire from podcasting to uh, help build his family he he relocated his wife and they looking they are looking to build a, a family together and he might be having some um, interesting uh, ventures into the music industry um, he's got opportunities that he, that that he needs to devote all his free time to building a family with his wife and working on his music. So he's retired from podcasting. He's no longer going to do podcasting. So when you hear me, it's always going to be solo unless I do uh, a once in a, a once in a blue moon. Pod. Like I got the monthly championship rounds podcast with uh, Tony in Vegas. Um, and I've got my monthly uh Legends of Sports and Music podcast. Well, not weekly, legend, which I do uh, tributes on legendary athletes and and soul soul musicians. I do those on my own. But uh, Logan decided to retire from podcasting. The the boxing thing would have been every once in a while, but you know, I give all credit to Logan because he was the one that brought me into podcasting in August of 2011. I called into world championship boxing. One of the shows he did, we started talking. And from that point on, he invited me as a guest and we did so we did, man, I think we did over 500 podcasts together in 11 years covering boxing, politics, music, movies, and television. And, with him, I honed my skills, and what you see is what you get, and that was through years of dialogue with Logan. Once again, thank you guys, LL, School K, uh, Mark, and 
Longtran for the great questions as we now go into my 45th greatest fighter. I mean, my seventh greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Larry Holmes. We begin. When I first began watching boxing in 1977, I remember my father constantly saying that the fighter who will replace Muhammad Ali as the next great heavyweight champion was this 27-year-old boxer with a brilliant jab named Larry Holmes. Going into his March 25, 1978 WBC heavyweight title eliminator versus the monster-punching Ernie Chavis, all I kept hearing was my father saying that this was the night that the world was going to see the next great heavyweight shine. It would be the night Holmes began a journey that would culminate in him becoming the seventh greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Holmes had fought in complete obscurity until his nationally televised fight against Sheamus. While undefeated in 26 fights, he was most famous for being Ali's chief spar partner. While in Ali's camp, Holmes became the ultimate apprentice. He sharpened his already outstanding left jab and footwork by engaging in hundreds of rounds sparring with the world-famous greatest. His performance that day against Sheamus showed that he had graduated into an elite boxer. My father sat in our living room proud as Holmes completely dominated the feared slugger with his soon-to-be legendary piston jab, sharp right cross, and deft footwork. Holmes won every single of every every single minute of every round and winning a shutout decision. He had earned an opportunity to face Ken Norton for Norton's WBC heavyweight title. On the night of June 9, 1978, Holmes and Norton would engage in a fight to remember. Holmes was a couple of months short of his, I mean, Norton was a couple of months short of his 35th birthday before he was to defend against Holmes. Seeing Holmes easily outbox a 33-year-old Ernie Shavers, to earn his title shot, I told my father that Holmes would do the same to the older champion. Holmes' style reminded my father and me of a young Ali. My father reminded me that Norton gave Ali hell in their three-fight trilogy and that his style would give Holmes fits as well. For the first five rounds, that wasn't the case. Holmes landed his piston-like jab, the greatest jab I've ever seen in my 43, oh, now my 47 years of following the sport, and controlled the action from outside the entire first seven rounds. Norton landed a few nice jabs and right crosses, but was unable to get past that battering ram of a left jab. After the seventh round ended, I told my father that Norton was washed up and that the fight was all but over. My father reminded me that it was a 15-round fight and it was a long way from being over. Norton proved my father right by dominating the eighth round. He began to, su to surprisingly out-jab the challenger and land several big rights. In the ninth round, Holmes began moving more and continued to double and triple his jab. But Holmes' jab was no longer keeping Norton from getting inside. Norton landed three booming rights in the ninth, ninth round. Between rounds 10 to 12, Norton's constant pressure and combinations off his jab carried the fight. Going into the 13th round, Norton had significantly closed the gap on the judges' scorecards. The last three rounds would be, in my opinion, the greatest last three rounds in heavyweight boxing history. Midway through the 13th round, Holmes staggered Norton with a tremendous left and right combination. He batted Norton all over the ring with several power punches. Norton survived the round, and my father warned me that Norton, even though he looked finished, still had some fight left in him.
Just like that, my father was once again right. Holmes had punched himself out trying to knock out Norton in the 13th. The 14th saw both men slugging on the inside. Then with less than a minute left in the round, Norton staggered Holmes with a right uppercut and right cross. Now it was Holmes who had to hold on and survive. The ebb and flow of the last two rounds was right out of a movie. It would have a cinematic ending. Holmes, although badly hurt and completely exhausted, stood toe-to-toe with Norton for the entire 15th round. The first two minutes of the round saw Norton land every single power punch in his repertoire, but he was unable to put the challenger on his back. With about a minute left in the round, Holmes staggered Norton with a sensational right uppercut, and now Norton was in deep trouble. Holmes landed one more hellacious shot. No, Holmes landed one hellacious shot after another off of Norton's jaw. My father and I were both screaming at the television in, pre- in pure adulation of what we were seeing. My mother was yelling at us to keep the noise down. The round ended with Holmes landing several vicious right hands. In my opinion, it's the greatest 15th round in history of the sport. Both men gave it their all in an epic conclusion to a great fight. Holmes would win the title via split decision. A new era in heavyweight boxing had commenced. After two easy defenses of his WBC title, Holmes ran into trouble defending his title versus the mammoth punching Mike Weaver and a rematch versus Chavis. Against Weaver on the night of June 22, 1979 in Madison Square Garden, Holmes was hurt several times and looked listless before landing a spectacular left uppercut in the 11th round and then stopping Weaver in the next round. The rematch against Shavers on September 28, 1979 was a facsimile of their first fight for the first six rounds. Then, all of a sudden, towards the end of round seven, Shavers landed a Howard serve a right cross that dropped Holmes. My father and I sat there in shock as Holmes went down like he was shot. However... Not unlike his idol and mentor, Ali, Holmes showcased an intentional fortitude that is needed to, to have in order, that is needed in order to be a legendary fighter. Holmes got up almost immediately, immediately and after surviving a storm, Holmes, behind the greatest jab in boxing history, regained the advantage before finally stopping Shavers in the 11th round. A year later, on October 2nd, 1980, Holmes defended his title versus the comebacking 38-year-old Ali. I was so hoping Ali had one last miracle left, but my father knew better. In a fight that made both of us cry, Holmes administered a one-sided beating to the iconic Ali. Ali had no business being in the ring anymore. The punishment he received that night against Holmes no doubt played a major factor in Ali becoming afflicted with Parkinson's. After Angelo Dundee stopped the fight before the beginning of the 11th round, the Ali era had finally ended and the Holmes era was in full stride. The biggest fight of Holmes' career would take place less than two years later against Jerry Cooney on June 11, 1982. The promoting of Jerry Cooney showed just how desperate America was for a legit white heavyweight champion. Although Cooney had a spectacular left hook, he had no other championship or star level qualities that made him a real threat to Holmes' title. My father laughed at this matchup. He stated over and over again that that Cooney's left hook was not enough to give him a prayer of winning. As usual, my father was correct in his assessment. That night, my father and I sat in a packed Puerto Rico theater in our South, in our South Bronx neighborhood, watching us on closed circuit as Holmes put on another masterful display of boxing. Holmes had been disrespected the entire lead up to the fight. He was even introduced first during the ring intros, despite the fact he was the champion. This added much more fuel to Holmes' fire that evening in Las Vegas. Other than the plethora of low blows Cooney landed that night, not one time did Cooney's amateur-like skills cause any problem for the exquisite champion. 
Finally, after a barrage of punches, Holmes finished off the overrated challenger in the 13th round. Cooney would fight sporadically over the next eight years and get destroyed by both Michael Spinks and George Foreman in two high-profile fights. Beginning in the next year, Holmes, approaching his mid-30s, would be, begin to show serious chinks in his armor. Although he, although, he dis, although he successfully defended his title eight times over the next two years, Holmes engaged in life-and-death struggles against both Tim Witherspoon and Carl Williams. Holmes barely won both fights, and now a few months before his 36th birthday, he was set to face the undisputed light heavyweight champion Michael Spinks on September 21st, 1985. Just a few days before this fight took place, my father volunteered to enter treatment for his addiction to alcohol. Right before he left to go to the upstate New York rehabilitation facility, he had predicted that Holmes had no shot in the world because despite the fact that Holmes, at almost 36 years old, was seven years older than Spinks, Holmes' all-time great jab would still be too much for Spinks to overcome. Pop felt that Holmes' jab was all he needed to defeat the smaller Spinks. Shockingly, the reverse occurred. For the first 10 rounds of the fight, Spinks employed a herky-jerky style that completely threw off and confused the very lethargic and slow Holmes. For the first time in his career, Holmes' devastating jab was completely nullified by the unorthodox movement utilized by Spinks. Spinks was the first fighter I ever saw out jabbing Holmes. Holmes made a spirited comeback the last five rounds, but it was too little, too late. In winning a 15-round decision, Holmes Spinks! became the first light heavyweight champion to win the heavyweight title. A few months later, on January 17, 1986, Don King and HBO announced the beginning of a heavyweight title tournament to crown an undisputed champion. One of the fights announced was a rematch between Spinks and Holmes. The rematch took place on April 19, 1986. This time, Holmes' booming jab was much more effective in combating the same Spinks' herky-jerky style. On a few occasions, late in the fight, Holmes came very close to knocking Spinks out. When the 15th and final round ended, it seemed a foregone conclusion that Holmes had regained the title. Amazingly, Spinks retained his title via split decision. A frustrated Holmes immediately retired. It finally looked like the career of one of the greatest heavyweights of all time had finally reached a conclusion. Less than two years later, Holmes began the first of several comebacks. On January 22, 1988, Holmes fate. Holmes faced Mike Tyson for Tyson's undisputed heavyweight title. Holmes, now 38, showed flashes of his old self, but was no match for the 22-year-old machine Tyson was at the time. Tyson violently knocked out Holmes back into retirement in the fourth round. Incredulously, three years later, Holmes, now 41, began another comeback. This comeback would last 11 years before Holmes finally called it, a, called it quits at the age of 52. Holmes fought 24 times over those 11 years and amassed an amazing 21-3 record in those fights. Holmes put on a master display by outboxing Olympic gold medalist Ray Mercer on February 7, 1992, earning another shot at the undisputed heavyweight title, this time held by Evander Holyfield. Holyfield had to use all his youthful speed and endurance in order to outpoint the 42-year-old Holmes. On April, 5, on April 8, 1995, the now 45-year-old Holmes received one final opportunity against the reigning WBC champion Oliver McCall. The fight was dead even after 12 rounds because Holmes' stellar left jab had kept him on even terms with the champion. However, Father Tom caught up with Holmes as he was completely exhausted in the final two rounds 
to lose the decision. It was a testament to Larry Holmes' greatness that in the twilight of his career, he was able to be more than competitive against Holyfield and McCall. Adding the fact that he successfully defended his heavyweight title 20 times before finally losing the belt to Spinks and the greatest jab in boxing history, along with a boxing style almost second to none in heavyweight history, you see why it's a no-brainer that Holmes is my seventh greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, I want everybody out there to be blessed and be a blessing.